Let's pray, okay? Can we, we're going to open up the scriptures here, but let's, uh, let's pray. How are you all doing this morning? Better than you did. That's absolutely right, Jason. Well, let's, uh, let's pray and uh, prepare our hearts as we look into God's word. Ask God uh, to work, okay? Bow with me. Father God, we are uh, gathered here again this morning, uh, not because we're good, but because we're weak and we're needy, not because uh, we've got it together, but we absolutely need you in life and don't have hope apart from you. Lord, I pray that as we open your scriptures today, you would be strong among us, your presence would indeed dwell among us and empower me that you would open our hearts to hear what it is that you have to say to us this morning. Lord, I pray for each heart here, hearts that are heavy, hearts that are grieving, hearts that just feel a little behind or a little bit worried or a little bit lost right now, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, whatever specifically you want to say to us that we would hear from you in these moments. Lord, we pray that as we uh, look into your word, as we look into the story of Acts, God, that during this series, in this year, you would make us more courageous for you, that you would make us more compassionate uh, towards our neighbors and toward the world, and that as we watch your spirit move among the early church, that your Holy Spirit would dwell more powerfully in us that we would sense your dwelling in us, that we would let your word dwell among us, and that we would dwell in you, God. So we ask this, Lord, we desperately need you. We want to know you and experience you more deeply. And so we ask these things in the name of the one who came and bled for us, loved us so much that he bled and died for us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the uh, most common misconceptions, the most common myths about Christianity today is that Christianity might be good for you privately or might be good for you personally, but that doesn't mean that it's for everybody. I mean, the world would say, hey, that's fine. You believe in Jesus. That's good for you. That works for you. But don't uh, make that sound like that's right for everybody. We all have to come to our own choices and what's right for you may not be right for everyone else. That's nice that you have this personal faith, but why don't you kind of keep it private to yourself and not hoist it on other people? That uh, misconception and that common myth, that idea flies in the face of what we see in the book of Acts. And that's our study that we're kicking off today as we look at the, the pouring out of God's spirit on his church, on this early group of followers of Jesus. And what we see in the book of Acts is the spreading of this gospel. And it spread not because these first followers thought it was just kind of personally fulfilling or existentially pleasing, but they went throughout the entire Roman world in the span of 30 years from Jesus' resurrection all, all the way to the writing of the book of Acts, in the, in the span of 30 years, this message of good news about Jesus 
had gone all the way to Rome, to the capital of the empire at that time. And they didn't spread it because they just, hey, this is kind of personally satisfying. They, they spread this gospel because they believed that it was the one truth. That in the pantheon of all the gods and all the religious options of Rome, they said, no, this is truth. This is, Jesus is not one God among many in this pantheon, but Jesus is the one and only true God. And many of them, in fact, all of those first 12 apostles went to their death defending this good news about Jesus. They took it to the world when the odds were totally against them and they made huge strides in their brief life to where at the end of Acts, we see the apostle Paul and he's under arrest. He's in prison in Rome awaiting trial, but the gospel has spread all the way to Rome by this ragtag, motley crew of people that were the beginnings of followers of Jesus. So if go ahead and open your Bible if you haven't already as we uh, begin this study today. And I'm, I'm excited about this. I think this is really going to challenge us. It's going to challenge us to take the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. It's going to challenge us uh, about the power of God. And this morning, we're just kind of opening up page one, the very beginning of this story, the first five verses, kind of scratching the surface and really laying the groundwork for what we're going to see as we uh, go through this book. The bulk of 2018, honestly, the bulk of our year will probably be spent in this book of Acts. So what we see here uh, today in the first five verses, we're going to see Acts uniqueness, Acts rationality, and Acts power, okay? Acts uniqueness, Acts rationality, and Acts power. So first of all, uh, let's read along together. Uh, you can follow along in your Bibles. I'm reading from the ESV. This will be on the screen as well. And uh, follow along with me these first five uh, verses here. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He, pre he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is God's word. Amen. So again, starting off here at the beginning, first of all, we see the uniqueness of Acts. The uniqueness of Acts. One of the things, the first thing we see here is from the first words there in verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, one of the things that makes Acts unique in the Bible and unique in the New Testament is that it is part two of a two-part volume, often referred to as Luke-Acts. We believe the author of both Luke and Acts is a physician named Luke. His name only appears in the Bible three times in the New Testament, but Luke is writing this and Acts is part two. Luke is part one and Acts is part two. And uh, it's the only companion volume in the scriptures. It's the only two-parter. 
So in the first century, they had scrolls that were fairly long that they would write on, and those scrolls were typically about as long as some of our longer New Testament books. So if you look at the book of Matthew, or if you look at the book of Luke, these are pretty long New Testament letters or New Testament books. So that's about as long as you can write, as long as the scroll is. So Luke writes scroll number one, the gospel of Luke, and then he writes scroll number two, Acts, which picks up uh, after Jesus' resurrection and as Jesus ascends back to heaven and leaves these instructions with his first followers. It's the two Uh, the only two-volume work we have of the New Testament. He's also, what's also unique about it is he's writing to O. Theophilus. And there's debate about who Theophilus is. Some people say that he was a a person of renown in the Roman Empire. He worked in Caesar's uh, palace, perhaps. And so Luke is writing to this historical person named Theophilus. In Luke chapter 1, verse 1, he calls him O most excellent Theophilus. Uh, There's also a theory that Theophilus just stands for those who uh, are Christians. The word Theophilus comes from two Greek words, Theo and Philia. You may know Theo is God, Theos, God, and then Philia, lover or friend. So he's writing to a friend or a lover of God. Uh, The other thing that's uh, unique about Luke is that Luke is the only Gentile author in the New Testament. The rest of the author's uh, are, are Jewish. Uh, Luke is a traveling companion of Paul. We find that out. Uh, we get hints of that at least as you get to chapter 16 in the book of Acts. The pronouns move from, from singular to plural. So the writer says, uh, we, and so he's talking about himself traveling with Paul on these missionary journeys. You can find that first appearance of the word uh, we in chapter 16, uh, verse 2. Acts is also unique in our Bible because uh, it stands alone as a history. If you, if, if you want to know about the churches of the New Testament, you can read Paul's 13 letters, Romans and all the other 13 letters that he wrote to these particular churches. Uh, you can read about those churches. Uh, there's also books in our New Testament uh, to certain pastors like Timothy and Titus, and there's multiple of those. There's only one book in our Bible that you go to if you want to know how the world began. And that's obviously the book of Genesis, the beginnings, right? There's also only one book in our Bible. If you want to know how things end, how things are going to turn out, where do you go? You go to the very end and you read the book of Revelation. But if you want to know how the church began and how Jesus' followers started, guess what? There's only one book to go to, and that unique history book is the one that we're looking at here. It's the book of Acts. Acts is uh, a bit of a misnomer. Uh, if you read the full, uh, the full title in your Bible, as it says in mine, it says the Acts of the Apostles. And Bible scholars have said this actually is not the best name for this book because first of all, the two prominent apostles uh, that the book follows is Peter and then Paul. They're the primary actors. But many have said the better title for this is the acts of the Holy Spirit. Because what you see in this book is the Holy Spirit prominently leading the church. In fact, 
It's the work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 1. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He's saying, what I started with in the book of Acts is what Jesus began to do and teach. And here's something that you need to realize about the book of Acts. Jesus is still working in the book of Acts. Did you catch the words there? What Jesus began to do and teach. Implication? Jesus is continuing to do things and teach things in the book of Acts, but now he's doing it through his church. Jesus hasn't ascended to heaven as now uh, done with the work that he started. He's ascended into heaven and he sends the Holy Spirit to the church to continue the work that he began to do and teach. So, it, so Acts, as I've already called it, is the history of the church, but you could also actually say that Acts is the history of of Jesus working through his church via the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that more as we go on this morning. The other interesting, another interesting thing about the book of Acts is it has a very abrupt ending. When you get to the end, there's 28 chapters, you basically just ends with Paul in prison in Rome. And there's not a nice bow around it. There's not this nice conclusion. And the reason is, is because the history of the church doesn't end in chapter 28. The church continues through Acts 29 and Acts 30 through us. In fact, there's a church planting network called Acts 29. There's only 28 chapters in Acts, but the church planting network led by Matt Chandler, a wonderful pastor over in Flower Mound, is called Acts 29 because the church continues and so you and I are, are continuing to build and grow Christ's church through the following chapters. Acts doesn't have this pretty ending because the, the story of God's work through the church is still being written. So Luke records what Jesus, in, in Luke chapter 1, what Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, verse 2, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, or through the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. And then go on, and in verse 3, we see Acts' rationality. We see the rationality of Acts. Look at in verse 3. It says that he, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So this is the only place in the New Testament where it gives us a timeline that for 40 days, Jesus, uh, after his resurrection, is teaching and training his early disciples for 40 days. And it says that he presented himself alive to them by many proofs. Now here's misconception number two that we need to talk about as we start Acts. Not only do people today believe, hey, Christianity, that's nice, but it's kind of a personal, private thing. There's also this common myth and misconception about Christianity today is that, hey, that, that's kind of, you know, uh, a feel-good thing if you want to believe that, but it's not based in facts. It's not based in reality. And all those people back in the first century and in Jesus' time, they were just kind of ancient, you know, gullible people that would believe that kind of stuff. You know, that's what ancient people believed, all these myths and, you know, supernatural things. But we can't believe that because we're sophisticated, intelligent, modern people, right? Wrong. 
what the people were like in the first century were like you and me. They, they also had brains. They also were sophisticated people. And it says that Jesus appeared to them and gave many convincing proofs that he had actually risen from the dead. They just didn't, quote, take it on faith. They looked at his nail-pierced hands. They saw him eating among them. He appeared to over 500 people at once. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us. So Luke, this doctor, this physician, is concerned to tell us that these earlier followers were not just ancient, gullible people, but they believed based upon what they saw with their own eyes and what they experienced in community together, not in some closet or in some cave alone by themselves getting direct revelation from God, but that Jesus appeared in a community of people of 12 that could verify it. And in crowds bigger than that, Luke makes the same point if you want to compare it as he begins uh, Luke chapter 1. Flip with me there. I think we might have this on the screen. Look at the way Luke uh, sets up his gospel here again, saying, I've investigated this stuff. You, you can believe this. Luke 1.1, uh, inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. What is he saying here? He's saying, I've done my research. I've looked into this. I've looked at the other accounts. Many have undertaken to compile this narrative. And they've talked to eyewitnesses and, and ministers of the word. So one thing I didn't mention earlier in the introduction was one thing that makes uh, Luke, another thing that makes Luke unique is that Luke wasn't among the, the original 12. Okay, you think about the 12 apostles, you might look at the gospel of Luke and say, oh, Luke is one of those first 12 apostles. Actually, he wasn't. He wasn't among the first tell, but he came along later traveling with the apostle Paul. And so that's where he gets his information from Paul and from other people who had relationship with the early disciples and had repeated these stories. Luke is investigating himself. He's taking into account what other people have written and what they've handed down through tradition. And he says, I want you to know the certainty at which you can believe these things. So Acts is not just a recording of miracles, supernatural acts that you just kind of have to take on faith. Packed within Acts here is both a rational presentation as well as a miraculous presentation of the person of Jesus Christ and the good news about him. As we go through Acts, we'll see that more. We'll see particularly in Acts chapter 17 how Paul is reasoning from the scriptures with the people that he's talking to. He goes to this place of, of, of knowledge and Greek philosophy in Athens, and he, he talks with the philosophers there arguing about how Jesus could be the Savior, how Jesus could be God the Son and the Savior of the world, the true King, if you will. So there's, Acts has a rationality to it. I say that Again, because of this common myth that says Christianity might, though, or religion, though personally appealing and maybe personally fulfilling, isn't based in reality and isn't based in facts. And I'm here to, to, set, to offer that not even the first believers in the first, in the first century thought that way about the gospel. 
They believed it with convincing proofs and with miraculous proofs and with evidence. So is Christianity rational? Well, it's not irrational. In fact, one of the best ways I've heard it just recently is that Christianity is transrational. Transrational in, in the sense that it's rational, but it even supersedes rationality. Yvonne, you following me? Thanks for the, thanks for the feedback. I like that. It's not irrational, but it supersedes rationality as well. And if you're here and you're exploring God and you just want to figure it all out in your mind, I got news for you. Uh, you may not figure it all out in your mind because it's, it's, it's not irrational, but it's transrational. And that's where we get in point number three, where we see Acts power. Acts power throughout this book. And that power, the key to that power, comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 4, follow with me again. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. What's the, the promise of the Father? The Holy Spirit. Which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And the key to the church's power was not their rationality, was not their cleverness, was not their, uh, their use of modern technology as it was in the first century, but the key to their impact and their power was this person, this promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, we're going to run into page after page in the book of Acts. If we look back in history, that famous uh, Martin Luther King speech, I Have a Dream speech, we celebrated, remembered him uh, last month. If you read Martin Luther King's famous speech, he uses the word dream 11 times in that speech. He uses the word justice or injustice 10 times in his speech. He uses the word freedom 20 times. And you just count up those occurrences. You just look at the way he uses words. You get a, a feel for what Martin Luther King's emphasis was, don't you? Well, if you look up the word Holy Spirit in your New Testament, if you look it up in the book of Mark, you'll find the Holy Spirit appear six times in the gospel of Mark, okay? Six times. If you look in the book of Luke, you'll find the Holy Spirit mentioned 16 times. And if you underline all the places in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit appears, you will underline Spirit or Holy Spirit 59 times. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is center stage in God's work in the church and in the book of Acts. 59 times. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. And just incidentally, another word that we'll run into time after time again as we go through Acts, prayer, pray, praying. 30 times in the book of Acts. Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit. Our men's Bible study is working through John. Flip with me to John chapter 14. The last night he was with his disciples. 
Jesus gave them this promise. John 14, I don't have this on the screen, but uh, flip there if you want to, just a couple verses. John 14, 15 through 17. John 14, 15, Jesus talking, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, if you were here last week, you should have circled already in verse 17 the word dwells, our theme word for 2018. But what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, I'm going to go back to my father, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm sending the spirit, this helper like me who will comfort you, who will remind you, who will teach you, who will dwell within you and guide you and empower you to do things that you cannot do on your own. Look at verse 26, same chapter, John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You might want to go back and read all of John 14 through 17. Flip with me quickly to chapter 16. Chapter 16 of John, verse 5 through 7. Jesus again. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus promises that he is going to send the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to his followers. And that happens, we'll see that happen in Acts chapter 2. He is the promise of the Father sent from Jesus and the Father to guide us, to help us, to indwell us. And it's this Holy Spirit that empowers these ragtag guys to take this message against the odds of the world all the way throughout the Roman world to where Paul can be ministering and preaching the gospel in Rome at the end of this book. It comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. They move from Jerusalem to Rome. And these weak, bumbling, fumbling men do amazing things through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if they did such powerful, wonderful things through the Holy Spirit, that they, they, did, they went places they never thought they would go. They gave their lives for this truth and, and that God used them powerfully. And if God used them so powerfully in that first century, might it be possible that God wants to use you and me more powerfully than we're being used right now Amen. by the power of the Holy Spirit? I was watching, you know, the, the Super Bowl last Sunday night with you, and uh, congratulations, Eagles fans. I, you know, for weeks I you know, was taking it out on you. There's a lot of believers on the Eagles. There's a lot of Christians on the Eagles uh, team. But as I'm watching the Super Bowl, I'm thinking, you know, what, how amazing would it be if Tom Brady became a Christian? 
I mean, here's a guy that's got it all. He's got all the influence. He's got all the money. He's got this beautiful wife and just successful career. I mean, the platform that guy would have to proclaim Christ. Now, I know the Eagles quarterbacks are Christians. I'm not trying to diminish that. Uh, but what if Tom Brady were a believer? Think about the impact he would have. And then I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 1 which says that God did not choose the great things among us. God did not choose the powerful among us, but he chose the weak among us. And these guys, these 12 weak guys, through the power of the Holy Spirit, made a difference that we're still reeling from today. And I wonder if they experienced that kind of power and that kind of impact, could it be that you and I have our bar set a little bit low in terms of how God wants to use you and I through the power of the Holy Spirit in this world. But here's the deal. Some of us right now are freaked out just by the word Holy Spirit. Admit it. Aren't you? Some of you? I mean, hey, I'm comfortable with, you know, this God language, but uh, there is kind of this natural progression, this natural conversion for many of us where you come to faith and the, you might tell your family, hey, I believe in God now. I got God. But then it kind of, it you have to kind of warm up to the fact of kind of throwing the Jesus word out there, right? I, I feel pretty comfortable talking about God, but you know, saying Jesus in a conversation, I kind of feel a little awkward about that at the table, Right? And so you ha kind of have this progression of, of growth and confidence from talking about God, the Father, and this kind of, you know, broad word for God, and then speaking of Jesus. And for some of us, that Holy Spirit, that kind of mysterious thing out there that indwells us but does this miraculous, goofy stuff, and some people are getting healed, and some people are speaking in tongues. I'm not sure I want to go there. I, I don't really want to talk about the Holy Spirit. But folks, as Jesus is indispensable from Christianity. The Holy Spirit is indispensable for Christianity. Amen. We cannot live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit who indwells and empowers believers. So let me ask you some questions. Are you nervous about this talk of the Holy Spirit? Can you talk of Holy Spirit and my pastor growing up would drop the article often. You know, I don't call you the Scott, you know, I'm Scott. Do you speak of Holy Spirit? Have you sensed Holy Spirit leading and ministering to you? What are your fears related to the Holy Spirit? Yeah, Ross, you know, I, I want to live for God. I want to live for Christ, but uh, I want to be filled with the Spirit, whatever that means, whatever that looks like. I just, I just don't want my neighbors to think I'm weird. You know, I mean, that's my deal. I, I really want to be filled by the Spirit, but I, you know, my weekends are kind of the only days that I get to just kind of relax. I want to I want to know this spirit that dwells within me but I don't want him getting in my wallet. 
And yeah, I'm willing to follow Jesus and have the Spirit have control over me, but man, I'm, I'm just, this is just kind of who I am. I mean, I was just kind of made this way, and I, 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 I've, got some, I've got some habits, and you just can't talk, teach an old dog new tricks, and this is just kind of who I'm going to be. And Holy Spirit says, no. When I come into hearts, when I come into lives, it's a renovation. Amen. It's a restoration. It's old things made new by the power of Holy Spirit. Are you ready to be challenged? Because as we walk through this, this book, we're going to be challenged. And we're going to be challenged to have a greater compassion and a greater care for our neighbors, for the lost in the world, for the nations around the world that have not even yet heard of Jesus. And we're going to be challenged to write chapter 29, chapter 30, chapter 31 of this story of God's church. You want in on that? I want in on that. You want in on the Holy Spirit dwelling within you and the power of the Holy Spirit working through your life, sensing him day to day, following his leading and direction, understanding the gifts that he has given you for the good of the church and the building up of the body. It's our privilege, it's our challenge to continue writing the story of Acts. Not the Acts of the Apostles, actually, but the Acts of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, through his people. And secondly, I want to point out that as Jesus spent these 40 days, if you look back in verse 3, it says he appeared to them during these 40 days and he taught them about the kingdom of God and he presented himself to them with, he presented himself to them with many convincing proofs. It's this period of 40 days. That word 40 is prominent throughout the Bible. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, guess what? We're coming upon, we're, we're coming upon a period of 40 days beginning this Wednesday. Do you realize that? Those of you that grew up in traditional backgrounds, you probably experienced, went through this season of Lent. Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday. And it begins this 40-day period as we prepare for Easter, the resurrection that these people believe literally happened. And so they went around proclaiming it all around the world. That period of preparation, Lent, begins this Wednesday. So I want to encourage you as I'm trying to consider myself, what is it that we need to do in this 40-day period that God, Holy Spirit, might dwell more deeply in us? That the word of Christ might dwell more deeply in us? That we might abide or dwell more intimately with Jesus, okay? That's the two things I want you to consider this morning. Do you want to be part of the continuing chapters, the unfolding of Acts? And secondly, what are you going to do in these upcoming 40 days to let the Spirit of Christ dwell within you in power? Pray with me.
Father God, we're so thankful that you have not let us, left us in this deeply messed up world all alone and broken. We see the effects of our sin and the brokenness of this world all around us. You have not left us alone, but you have sent us a savior, a redeemer, a rescuer, Jesus. And though we don't have the privilege of walking with him in his footsteps like those first followers did, Lord, you nevertheless have not left us orphans. You have sent your Holy Spirit to indwell those of us who believe in Jesus. And so, Father God, my prayer, not just for these 40 days, but especially in these 40 days, is that we might more deeply sense his dwelling in us personally, his dwelling among us as a worshiping, gathering community, that we would not quench the Holy Spirit, but that we would welcome this mysterious, strange, supernatural, spiritual reality of God the Spirit dwelling in and among us. Again, Father, my prayer that we would grow in courage, that we would grow in compassion, that we would grow in intimacy as we consider your words here in this story of Acts. And Father, as we turn our hearts to celebrate the table, we pray, God, that as we come forward in this physical act, that you would remind us, that you would renew us in the spirit of our hearts, that you would empower us through the celebration of this meal as we remember Jesus' blood and his body given to us. God, we need you. We need you every hour, but oh God, we need you. And we ask you to dwell powerfully among us for our good and for the glory of your name, we pray.